Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for May 26th, 2020. My name's Show Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, this week we have a very special episode for everyone. For the first time in Adequately Informed history, we were able to secure a guest for our main segment. So stick around. We are going to be interviewing former Warren campaign staffer Casey Sabella. And it was a fantastic interview. Gave a lot of good insight. You're not going to want to miss this one. But in general, what we do is we're going to discuss some topics, maybe even bring up some issues. And from there, we're going to discuss them, evaluate everything in the light of facts, trying to make sure that we're discussing things in good faith and making sure that we are doing our best to try to stay adequately informed. Yes, we know we don't know everything. Uh, We aren't perfect. And our viewpoint isn't the only one that matters. We are not on the ivory tower. Uh, We want to explore things in a way that would be amenable to as many people as possible. We ain't going to argue against the straw man unless we explicitly say we're going to. Um, But Evan. Yeah? What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about the most unfairly criticized person in all of sports. Pete Rose. Mitchell. <laughs> That's, well, he should be in the Hall of Fame. But I want to talk about Mitchell Trubisky. Go on. Embattled quarterback Mitchell Trubisky plays for the Chicago Bears, my favorite football team. And in 2017, the Bears traded up in the draft to make him the number two overall selection. In 2018, he led the team to a playoff appearance which they would have not which they would have won if not for an inopportune double doink. However, last season in 2019, Trubisky significantly regressed, showing poor decision making, a lack of poise in the pocket, and real lack of accuracy, especially on his medium to deep throws. The offense faltered and the Bears missed the playoffs. So this offseason the Chicago Bears decided to bring in an established veteran to make this a quarterback competition. So they traded a fourth-round compensatory pick for former Eagles Super Bowl hero and more recently former Jaguars quarterback Nick Foles, known to the faithful as Saint Nick or Big Dick Nick. He's now a Bear. And... Everyone in the media world is speculating that he has won the battle, that there's no way that Mitchell Trubisky comes back from this. But I want to take a look and make the case for Mitchell Trubisky. Number one, Mitchell Trubisky in 2018 was an elite quarterback. By ESPN's QBR rankings, he was the number third most effective passer in the entire league, trailing only Drew Brees and Patrick Mahomes. In 2018, when the offense was working well around him and the complimentary pieces were there, he was a legitimate franchise quarterback and he was rewarded with a trip to the Pro Bowl and a playoff start. Just one season later, all of a sudden we believe that Trubisky doesn't have it in him to become a great quarterback, I don't think we have the evidence to say that. Look at the careers of Foles and Trubisky. Take out Foles' postseason success, which is impressive, but comes in a small sample size. 
They have similar passer ratings, and Trubisky actually has better career yards per attempt numbers. In 2019, the Bears struggled across the board. And much of it doesn't fall on the feet of Trubisky, aside from the few issues that I mentioned earlier. In addition to the fact that he was often playing hurt, the offensive line play and defense regressed significantly, which often put him in much worse positions. GM Ryan Pace failed him by trading away one of their biggest offensive weapons in Jordan Howard. And Matt Nagy, his coach, failed him by not updating his play calling. Defenses never had to guess what the Bears were doing, because they already knew. Mitchell Trubisky is just one season away, one season removed, from elite quarterback performance. And this is why I want to criticize the real villain here. Recency bias. Just because Trubisky was bad last year, we don't get to throw out all of the good things that he has done. Granted, he's not a perfect quarterback, and his selection is always going to be overshadowed by the fact that he came out of the same quarterback draft as Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson, who are unquestionably better players and would have been infinitely better picks for the Chicago Bears. But just because he's not Mahomes or Watson doesn't mean that he is not one of the next 30 best quarterbacks in the league. Mitchell Trubisky is someone who deserves another shot in Chicago. The Nick Foles trade is fine because they didn't give up much to do so. But Trubisky is not done yet, and we can't allow recency bias to cloud player evaluation. Joe, what are your thoughts on recency bias? Oh, it's it's recent. Um, uh, I mean, outside of this, it definitely has an effect. Like, just thinking offhand, um, it's such a powerful effect that, um, oh, what was it? That, like, when people uh, conduct polls where they ask, you know, which candidate do they like? Uh, they part of asking the poll is that they don't ask it in the same uh, order every time, because if you have the same first and last person every time, I mean, there's a bias towards people who are first on list, but there's also a bias to people who are last on list, which is part of the recency bias. The last thing you heard. And the so, other, the correlating thing where there's a favorite favoritism for the first item in a list is the primacy bias. Yeah. The first thing, you know, your attention is whole. You know, the first thing on this, you you listen to Evan. Now you're hardly listening to me. Um, but yeah, recency bias is uh, definitely a thing. But it it's um, it's interesting when you know evaluating someone's uh, performance on something because everyone tries to make trends. Or, you know, I'm guessing the sports punditry class, you know, trying to see trends out of, uh, you know, the most recent data. And, it, you know, if Mitch was had a very good first season and then, you know, the season after that didn't have such a good one, you'd be like, oh, he's he's trending in a downward direction. Um, so, it you know, we, we don't have the next uh, data point on that. We don't have the uh you know where next from that because we can't see trend lines into the future because they have yet to be made yet so um yeah 
I don't know. That's about what I got to say. All of this is to say, I don't know if Mitchell Trubisky will ever become a truly elite quarterback, but it is premature to count him out. Yeah, so, two seasons? Three seasons, but yeah. Oh, okay. Ah, I was there wrong. was a rookie. There, there, there was a rookie year lumped in there too, but it was a rookie year, so oh, my whole conclusions. my whole opinion changes now. Three seasons—that's <laughs> enough to know. For a TV show, yes. Trubisky, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Joe. Evan. What do you want to talk about? Oh, uh, I want to talk about something called global budgets. Um, Ooh, which do go which, on. Yeah, I mean, from your uh, your response to that, that makes me think that I haven't talked about on this podcast before, which I was scared about. But <laughs> global budgets is a term of a specific policy used in the healthcare arena. Um, so this is going to be a healthcare policy rant. But the idea of global budgets is that you take a hospital a or like a unit of healthcare providing whatever and you set a cap you set a maximum of the amount of money that that hospital can make you know money wise so you know it it puts a limit on what they can make in a year and why would why would we want to do this So with hospitals, you know, they treat care and you want them to be able to treat all the patients that need to come in and they need to make money off of it because it costs money to do all those things. But you also run into issues where hospitals will provide um, extra services or they don't. A big thing is that they don't do a lot of preventative care. Uh, to prevent diseases or prevent illnesses from getting worse because there isn't a whole lot of incentive to monetarily. There isn't an incentive to um, prevent someone from having a heart attack when you can have someone have a heart attack and then need to be treated because of that. And, you know, there are a lot of people who, you know, will kind of do the conspiracy theory. Oh, hospitals want you to be sick and try to keep you sick. And it's not so much that they want you to be. I don't like I don't think any uh, doctor or nurse wants you to be sick. But there is clearly, at least in the United States model, a clear financial incentive for them to be you know, for the hospital to be full of sick people because that means that it's full of paying customers. Um, you know, other countries with uh, private health insurance often uh, cure this by making hospitals nonprofit, but I don't see that being a route we go down in the United States. I mean, I could be wrong, but it just doesn't seem too likely. But one policy that uh, I believe it was the state of Maryland introduced was these global budgets. So... The global budget is set high enough that the hospital is able to pay for basically all their staff and all of their, um, you know, equipment needs, their hospital rent and all that fun stuff. But, you know, there is this kind of last little bit that they decide what they do with it. So it incentivizes hospitals to see 
few or not to see, but to have fewer patients because they're still required by law to take on patients as they're needed. But if they really want to make profit, if they want to make more money, they are actually incentivized to have fewer people in the hospital, which is a reversion of the other, you know, the other incentive structure. And in Maryland, this has led to some good uh, aspects. I listened to a podcast where they interviewed a director of a hospital in Maryland, and he was saying that um, because of the, uh, you know, global budgets, you know, they're like, well, you know, we're seeing a lot of we're seeing a lot of children with issues or this or that. And they become serious and they come to us uh, when it becomes more serious. And that's really eating into our budget. So what if we sent our own nurse to go and work at the public school system to check in on kids, to help prevent illnesses from getting worse, to help prevent, uh, you know, any ailments that they may have from getting worse to the point where they have to come to the hospital and have it treated. It's a lot cheaper to spend money on one nurse checking up on a whole bunch of kids than for the kids to show up at the hospital when they need help. Um, and that, ha you know, they, they have instituted a whole lot of other programs that deal with helping preventing illness instead of treating it where that same hospital executive, um, you know, exclaimed that, you know, sometimes he'll go through his hospital, which is now like half empty because of the measures and be a little spooked because, you know, the old model was, you know, while it's bad for people to be in the emergency room or be in the hospital because, you know, they're sick and having all these issues, um, you know, seeing people in beds was a sign to him that, you know, the financial health of the hospital was in good hands. But now it's a good sign of the financial health of the, of the hospital that there aren't people in the hospital, that they can close down a whole wing and not, uh, you know, be in fear of their financial solvency. So global budgets, you know, Creating a maximum of the revenue that a hospital can earn seems to be a tool in the arsenal of combating healthcare costs. It's not an end-all be-all because in Maryland, healthcare costs have continued to go up, but they have gone up less, uh, not as fast as the rest of the nation. And if it came down to a single-payer system, this could be part of the single-payer system to help decrease healthcare costs and incentivize preventative care um, that otherwise wouldn't happen. Well, this is the first that I've heard of this, but I think it's a fascinating concept because anytime that you want to get something done, you have to figure out the most effective way to do it. And that doesn't always necessarily mean just barging through the door and demanding that people do something a certain way. Sometimes you have to create a system that aligns incentives in a way to get your desired outcome. And it seems like this system does that effectively, at least in the sample size in which it's been tried. Prevention is always cheaper than treatment. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say always, because every time you say always, you end up getting bit in the ass. But 
enough of the time. Yeah. (laughs) It is a lot better to be able to change the tires on your car, even though that's kind of expensive. Also, I need to change the tires on my car. So that's why this is, (laughs) so this is in my head. It's better to change the tires on your car than to have one blow out on the highway. And then you have to pay for who knows what other repairs and towing fees. So applying that to healthcare just seems like the logical extension. And I think that it is worth looking into and exploring as a policy choice. Yeah, because while I am a supporter of single pair healthcare now, I mean, in this show, you know, we go into the pragmatic versus the ideal. I basically support. I will throw my weight behind anything that gets more people healthcare, but you know, I do prefer a single pair. But uh, you know, in the United States, you know, we could fight for a single pair, but we still have to contend with the issue that healthcare costs so damn much in this country for uh, numerous reasons. And getting costs down is important for it to be a good public good. Um, And yeah, preventative care is very important. Like, basically, hospitals are like the roadside service of cars. Yeah. Like, you, you know, it's a lot easier to pull your car into a shop when everything's healthy, you know, get an oil change instead of having your engine blow because it overheated on the side of the road. Um, whereas, I mean, that's kind of what we're doing now, you know, instead of, um, you know, getting people in for checkups to, you know, do care that may prevent a heart attack, we're... <laughs> We're letting people keep going until they have a heart attack because that's an actual healthcare need that's prescient and can be billed and, you know, make money off of. Um, whereas global budgets kind of flip flip it on its head. You know, I think a lot about um, like ambulances and how much an ambulance ride costs. And there is a reason why it costs a lot of money is because you basically have these vehicles and these personnel just 24 seven always on alert and have to have enough capacity to respond to multiple calls within a municipality, um, to get people to the hospital to receive care at a moment's notice. But they are, you know, it is very expensive, but there are also a lot of people who will end up taking, uh, you know, an ambulance to the hospital or try to take an ambulance to the hospital because they have no other means of getting there. So, you know, a, uh, you know, a healthcare system that is constrained by global budgets would possibly find it cheaper to hire a guy with a van to go around and pick up people who need to get to the hospital for their appointments in order to cut down on, uh, ambulance calls because the person had no other means of transportation to get to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, cutting costs is definitely one part of the equation that is not nearly explored because we want to think that um, that you know if we just pay for everything from the federal government, you know, we can bargain everything, but. You know, as we know, that's that's uh, 
not always the case. There have to be clever ideas of how to cut cost. So well, especially when it is in terms of healthcare, it just seems like such a no-brainer because typically the lower cost options are better for people. It's better to have regular doctor checkups than to have some sort of emergency, which carries a much higher risk of death. So it seems like a clear case where the incentives are properly aligned and it just makes too much sense. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, go to your local town meeting, ask for global budgets, you know, activism. I don't know. That's not how you get that. But we'll get there uh, in a sec. Very soon. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's one policy proposal for y'all to gnaw on to think about about how your hospital pays for things. But yeah, that's all I have to say on that. So this week on Adequately Informed, everyone, we have a very special guest, and it is the first guest in Adequately Informed history. So we are very excited. Uh, Our guest this week is Casey Sabella. Casey is an experienced political operative who has worked on campaigns and won campaigns in various areas of the country. She'll, She'll be able to tell you a little bit more and get into some of her background. I know Casey from our days competing in college speech, although I am fairly certain that she beat me in every single round, so it wasn't much of a competition. But uh, she is wonderful, and we are happy to have her. Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Casey, can you tell us a little bit more about your prior political experience? Yeah, I first got involved, um, I mean, I've been political most of my life, I would say, but I became what I would call like an activist and an engaged member of that community during grad school. I didn't want to write a thesis. It didn't feel right to me. Um, I actually spent a lot of my graduate degree picking fights about politics and how we talk about people and things. And so for my master's capstone, I ran a congressional primary campaign, having no idea what I was doing at all. Um, and we actually ended up winning and it kind of jump-started a career, deeper thoughts about activism in general, and really kind of transformed my life. So that is how oh, wow. I was involved. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. It was like me and one other student running this primary campaign. None of us, it was a first-time candidate. We were first-time anything on any campaign in any capacity. Um, but we just showed up places and did what we thought made sense. And in, you know, because of a, a multitude of reasons and a twist of fate and a bit of hard work, you know, we won a primary and it wasn't like a hotly contested primary or anything. Don't get me wrong. We were, we were in Indiana. Um, but that's where I began. Hey, a win's a win. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. That's what I, that's what I like to think. A win's a win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It seems like Absolutely. with uh, political operative work, once you get that fat dub, you know, you're in. <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely uh, as what I would say, but same concept. So. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that was. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that race? Uh, it was a primary. Was it uh, state level, national level? Yeah, it was um, congressional. I was working in Indiana's sixth district. I worked with Janine Lee Lake um, when she first ran for Congress in 2018 in the primary. She is running again, um, but that first time, you know, she declared her candidacy because like many women around the country, she watched what happened with Trump and was obviously really upset. Um, She was a nonprofit. 
chair. She worked as a journalist for many years and she decided that she wanted to be, be engaged in a, in a different way than just, you know, her community activism and her, her time that way. And so she decided to run for office and through a mutual friend um, introduced the two of us. And we were like, what if we just did this thing? And what if we did it together? And then another student helped us out and the three of us, you know, ran a congressional primary that was very unconventional, much smaller scale. I think what's hard is like explaining this without understanding there's like a spectrum of, of levels of campaigning, right? So while it was a congressional national primary, it was also uh, a red district where not a lot of people paid attention, but we were the mm -hmm. people who, who did. And so we won that race. There were five candidates, three that were really serious, and we won the primary. Uh, that's just got to be so exciting to sort of just uh, take it upon yourself to just get right into the mix and then end up successful. I think that's just a testament to your skills and abilities. And I, I just I'm, I'm a little bit in awe for <laughs> hearing about this. That's just amazing. So how did that lead you into the Elizabeth Warren campaign? And could you tell us a little bit more about your work in that area? Yeah, there's about a two-year gap between, of course, that race and where we are now here in the year of our Lord 2020. And during those two years, I worked a lot of different kind of races. I worked super local races. I worked, um, you know, for the I worked like on a Senate re-election campaign later on in 2018 after we won that primary. I worked a lot of different jobs trying to get experience. And I worked a really, really difficult race in upstate New York that was just the perfect storm of things going horribly wrong and horribly right. And we we ultimately won that race by 88 votes. But I kind of walked away in late 2019, a little jaded, really tired, really disillusioned, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to being a woman in this industry. I feel like everyone knows, right, it's hard to be a woman in politics. But a race I ran in 2019 just really, really attacked the core, I think, of who I was. And so I was not necessarily looking to start another campaign right away. It's not super uncommon for campaign staffers to take some time off or be unemployed for a while in between races because it's a really brutal schedule. But I saw that Elizabeth Warren was hiring in my home state of Ohio. Um, and I, I, you know, I knew people who worked for Warren. I had a lot of former friends and mentors who went on to work for Warren. A lot of really powerful women who kind of raised me up in the industry went on to work for Warren. And I saw that she was hiring in my home state. And I said, that seems like something you can't pass up. You know, I probably won't get a call back, but let's give it a shot. And I did. <laughs> and obviously I kept, you know, interviewing and eventually got offered a job. My role was a regional organizing director, which is basically a fancy word that means you're in charge of the field operation for a certain part or geographic area of a state. Um, I was in Southwest Ohio, Cincinnati and Dayton. And my job was to oversee the, the field operation, which is recruiting volunteers, making phone calls, knocking on doors. And that's what I did. And that's how I got there. Awesome. And we're definitely going to pull this apart more because Elizabeth Warren has been a, a big fixture on this podcast. And, and, and we got a lot of questions about that. But I want to loop back to what you said about uh, the political machine being especially brutal for you as a woman, because I think that's so important. And, and I would just, uh, if you're willing, would love to hear a little bit more about that aspect of it. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's all different kinds of things, right? So pretty much any, I think, woman in politics I was managing during that race, the one I'm thinking about, it was a district attorney race in upstate New York. But I it's like routinely being asked if you're the candidate's daughter or niece or mm. why are you here? 
they're small things. Sometimes men get really aggressive, older men, like out in the community at events. And they'll just say to you, what's a pretty young thing like you doing in politics? Like, ha ha ha, oh, gosh. get married and settle down. And it's like, obviously that's egregious, but it's also makes a lot of sense to the 60 year old man you're probably talking to. Um, mm -hmm. So there's like small things, but the industry itself is also, as I'm sure you can imagine, can be really problematic. Um, campaigns almost have, it's not, frat like culture is not quite the way to describe it but you know on bigger campaigns there have been some issues with like drinking and you have a lot of young people in a small space fighting for things they really believe in with not a lot of oversight and typically politics is run by the young people who have the desire to work 15 hour days seven days a week right so it's like mm -hmm. it can become a really toxic culture really accidentally um and so it was both like I was working for an older male candidate and the, the, the gap between us had never felt wider than when we were dealing with gender issues, first of all. Mm -hmm. Also, there are some issues where contemporaries and partners who I knew in the area weren't being treated well by, by men in positions of power. Um, so, you know, protecting the people and the other, other players in this, I basically had to, had to report some inappropriate behavior and kind of be the backbone of, of a region and of a campaign in a way I didn't expect to be. So it was both like the everyday raindrops, but something bigger too that caused me to really be really be tired after that one and want to sleep for a while. Yeah, I can't even imagine having to put up with it kind of coming at you from all directions. And so um, I, I, it's unfortunate that you had to deal with that so acutely in that race. But uh, it, it sounds like you had a more positive experience with the Warren campaign. Can, can you tell us about how that kind of differed in your experience? Yeah, I kind of joke um, as I'm interviewing for jobs in my next step, I joke that Warren was like this eat, pray, love experience for me. <laughs> you laugh, but it's true. I was like reminded of why I started this work and why I do it and why I love it. They just built a really, a really wonderful and exceptional team um, a very, very kind and wonderful people, a lot of which were, were women and people of minority status. And so it was just a uniquely, uniquely special group. And we were also unionized, um, which, which makes a world of difference where there's some kind of body, you know, looking out for, for people on campaigns. And I yeah, that's say, awesome. Like, yeah. Like when you work on a campaign, you know, you work the crazy hours cause you want to win. Um, and it's a unique breed and a unique industry, certainly but it can also be really helpful to have, have a body to protect you and have, have structure. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I think with certain campaigns, it can really help to have someone who is really inspiring or visionary leading the campaign. And I think it's safe to say that you found that in Elizabeth Warren. Can you tell us about what, aspects of her message resonated with you? Yeah, I think, you know, broadly, I really like to, whenever possible, and when it aligns with my beliefs, support women candidates. Um, you know, a lot of my research, I got my master's in communication, but I focused on politics. Now we talk about women in politics. And I just learned that the the gap that women have to have to cross to be able to win an election is so much farther than men. So generally, I love supporting women candidates, especially progressive women, but what really, really hit me, like really made me fall in love with Elizabeth Warren, for lack of a better phrase or word, because <laughs> I went to see her speak in Columbus with my sister, like way before, almost a year before I got, you know, hired on her campaign. 
Um, and we were, we waited outside to be in the front row and we were really excited. And she told the story about when her dad had a heart attack and her mom, you know, got a minimum wage job and went back to work and saved the family and how, how strong her mom was and how much it meant to her family. And she talked about how now we, a minimum wage job, like can't save a family. It's not enough money. It's not enough resources. The world has changed. And she just wants to fight for people to have that opportunity. And obviously I'm paraphrasing and glossing over, you know, some really lovely parts of the story, but it was just, she was so human in a way. I don't think female candidates often get to be, and she was so smart and so wonderful. And my sister was holding her, her Elizabeth Warren sign upside down and aggressively shaking it. (laughs) Um, And I was like, Carly, what are you doing? And Elizabeth just leaned over and said, don't worry. I like it that way. (laughs) right like I just like melted in a puddle um but you know first of all it was like that wonderful experience we had but also former teachers who were single moms who who come from a working class background don't really get to run for office and the fact that she she got that opportunity and made so much of it inspired me every day so I could talk about Elizabeth Warren for hours but what it came down to was she was a different kind of candidate that you don't see that didn't I feel like for me, compromise any parts of herself. And that was so inspiring. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that you bring up that story that is very foundational, I think, to her status as a politician about her mother being able to get a job at Sears and bring the family back from the brink of ruin. Uh, in the lead up to this recording this week, I read her book, This Fight is Our Fight. I don't know if you've if you've read it or are familiar with it, but she does tell that story. And basically at, at every juncture in her life, she understands that America used to be built to give people second chances and third chances. And it wasn't so punitive as it is now. That's, I think, what stood out to me the most reading her book is just the degree to which she gets it, whatever it is. Um... She won a scholarship out of high school to attend, I think it was Georgetown, but she left to get married. And at the time, that may have been sort of the death knell for her career prospects, but she was able to go to the University of Houston for $50 a semester, which is also a a really central foundational story for her. And she is so persuasive, I think, because she's able to look back at those moments in her life where there was an opportunity for her and then she actively questions why those same opportunities don't exist today for a lot of people. Yeah, no, I I agree with that take definitely. And yeah, and she just does such a good job of of threading the narrative and the experience and with the policy in a way that I think is truly exceptional. Like for some people, the fact that they went to a community college isn't a story, but when Elizabeth Warren tells it, tells it, it becomes this bigger cry for, for accessible and affordable education. And I think that's, that's really smart and really well done on her part too. Absolutely. And I love how a lot of times when you can get down into sort of the policy level analysis of what she says, she has this ironclad defense of, well, I actually did this research or she's a researcher with a research background. And I just think she speaks from a place of of very high credibility and authority on most of the topics of which she addresses. Yeah, I definitely agree. And if she doesn't, she does her homework. And that's something else I really valued about the campaign too, is it was a bunch of people who love doing their homework and I said, oh, good, I'll fit in here. Um, 
because they like to like it was it was common knowledge that we we enjoyed checking and double checking and reading and doing thorough research before putting out putting out a policy or putting out an idea and I think that's something that I want to I want to see broader on a scale in life right like I love the, mm-hmm. the research and the accountability and the way of producing it as well well yeah with the type of people that would be inspired by Elizabeth Warren it does sound like a good campaign would or a good campaign environment would come of that um, where people honestly want to go and do the work and try and better everything. Um, it's not just inspiring your general, you know, whatever stock political operative to go jump on board. It's a dedicated group of people from what it sounds like. Yeah. I think another term could be nerds, but I think dedicated group of people <laughs> is probably more flattering. <laughs> um, I also liked how, you joined this campaign because you were inspired by her and not because it was like a job. Because when I was in college, I briefly joined a state senator's campaign and I didn't really know much about him and I didn't know much about the work. And because of that, I did not like working there. So I only lasted a week. So (laughs) (laughs) it's uh, good to hear you're inspired and have a good story about it. Yeah, I'm definitely definitely a big Warren fan and definitely for for a bunch of mushy reasons. So Yeah. <laughs> so Joe has a little bit of experience working on campaigns or offices or what have you. I have none. We sit here I also want to say we... I have zero. Um <laughs> Okay. <laughs> one week is yeah. Yeah. Functionally zero. Functionally zero. Anyway, we we talk about politics a lot, but you live and work politics. And so I was hoping that you could maybe fill us in a little bit on what that process actually entails on a on a day-to-day basis to do that work and to hold that position. Yeah, I think my first overarching thought is that all campaigns look vastly different. I've worked, you know, races where I'm organizing and working in a rural area and I have no office and I like bring a fold-up chair to a McDonald's parking lot And I've also worked races where there's a really clear structure and lots of money and like you have a space to go and work. So it's, it varies drastically based on, based on what you're doing, whether it's a a local race or a state house race or a statewide race. But generally my, my world and where I work and exist is in field. I mentioned this briefly before. It's the, the part of a campaign that recruits volunteers and citizens to phone bank and knock on doors RIP, no longer in this era, unfortunately, knock on doors and, <laughs> and do kind of the grunt work that that gets people elected. It's talking directly to voters. Um, and I, I often say, like, I deal in the currency of people, of getting people to vote, of getting people to take the action, of getting people to change their minds. And I help mentor and work with people to do. But generally, a day for me, um, as a person who works in organizing, is you start the day with a 10 a.m. region-wide call or area-wide call, kind of like your whole your whole geographic area gets together. So I'd start every morning, 10 a.m., all of my organizers and staff would get on a call for Southwest Ohio for Warren. We'd talk about the day, what we needed to do, um, you know, general important things to know before you start. I would send them off into the ether to do work all day. And then what's normal is you have a checkout call around 9 p.m. at the end of the day. So campaigns typically go on weekdays from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. And the most important hours to a field person are from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. or 8 p.m., which is something we call call time. 
And during call time, it's a very sacred time. You are on the phone calling people to ask them to volunteer. And that is what you do for like four or five hours at a time. Um, normally you make about 200 calls and you, yeah, it's crazy. You make a huge amount of calls, trying to talk people into volunteering, trying to get them to do this work that to be honest, like people don't want to do at first. If someone calls you out of the blue and says, hi, my name is Casey. Come do this thing. Come knock on a bunch of doors in the heat or in the snow, right? Your initial reaction is to say no. Um, so we have, we have tips and tricks and for me, it's often being really earnest and asking people really nicely, but we try and get people to come in and volunteer. And then on the weekends, the schedule is a little bit different. We're obviously hosting canvases and phone banks and events where people can talk to voters. So during the week, I spent a lot of time on the phone and during the weekend, I spent a lot of time training people to have important conversations, um, preparing materials for them, monitoring them, making sure they can do their best volunteer work. So that's a really loose schedule, but during the week you're making recruitment phone calls. During the weekend, you're monitoring people talking to voters. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a, a lot of days off there for you. <laughs> no, no. We had, <laughs> we had you know, some ca- campaigns give you like one day off a week where you get time off. But, but generally, once you dive in, it's like, all right, for the next six months, this is what I do now. It's great. <laughs> Oh, right. Because it's so, not open-ended. Oh, ahead, you you, you, ha- you have that deadline. It's like, we got to do all the work we possibly can in this short amount of time. So yeah, it makes so sense why I'm there's actually, no time off. Oh, yeah. And so often I'm like, I could go home. But what if this one hour of work is the difference between us winning and losing? And that's very illogical. <laughs> like, most races aren't won by, like, a couple of votes or a field margin. But to me, in my brain, I'm like, I have to do it. So, yeah. Now, I think that I sense sort of a growing cynicism about individuals' ability to make an impact in political campaigns. But obviously, your your job in a lot of these instances is to overcome that cynicism. So what do you say to people who maybe feel like they don't matter or they can't make a difference or if they do want to volunteer – where can they get the most bang for their buck? Where Where is their input most effective? I know that was like a lot of questions all at once. You, you can take it however you'd like. To be fair, I've been asked that question by, by people out in the field over and over again, right? Like volunteers think about giving up or they're not sure, or you have them on the phone and you're like, come canvas with us this weekend. And they're like, I don't know, what difference does it make? For me, I think I try to stress that a lot of times if I stress that like, maybe you just didn't realize how big of a difference you were making right when you volunteered. And I know that sounds cheesy, but I think sometimes we're not great at saying what, how your actions will get someone elected or how the work you do manifests or translates. Because in campaigns, you do do a lot to get a little, that's, that's the name of the game. But I like to think of it this way, you know, one person knocks on your door, you convince one other person to vote. If they tell their husband or their wife, hey, this kid knocked on my door today and they told me about this great candidate, that's another person. And face-to-face conversations are proven to be the most effective at persuading and motivating people to change their minds or go out and vote and do the thing. So yeah, we could spend more money on running advertisements, but you know what's more powerful than that? Someone talking to you face-to-face and talking to you as a human, as a voter, as a citizen, as a neighbor. So I kind of bring up the fact that one, scientifically, this is what works best, even if it feels like you have to do a lot to get a little. And two, what is unique about, I think, having a conversation with a human is that it can, the ripple effect, I think, is stronger and the way it manifests is more significant and sticks with people 
I certainly the things we remember about politics are speeches and and moments of really good communication rather than necessarily a a ad you see on a billboard or a stagnant appeal to make you vote or make you think. So I think I try to stress it's the most powerful thing to do. I try to stress that sometimes the the benefits aren't always clear, but on election night you can you can see it pretty clearly, right? And you can feel it. And I think even when I'm at my most downtrodden and when my volunteers are the most downtrodden, I try to remind them you don't want to wake up the day after an election and feel regret. Because that's what mm-hmm. I felt in 2016, um, before I even started doing this work. And I think so many people felt that. Like maybe, maybe I don't have definitive proof as a as an average person that, you know, knocking on doors is the most powerful thing in the world. Maybe I haven't read the articles, but at least doing that feels better than waking up with regret the next day, right? So those are yeah. some spitball thoughts. I can elaborate or make those make more sense as needed. No, I think that made a lot of sense. Uh, it's fascinating. I never realized that there was actually the research and the evidence to suggest that it's the face-to-face contact that sticks with us, with us the most. I think that's honestly very persuasive to know that that is the best way to go. But unfortunately... That, as you mentioned earlier, that avenue is largely gone right now. So how can a political campaign compensate for that loss of the face-to-face interaction in the face of this freak global pandemic? Yeah, I think first and foremost, we're still figuring that answer out. Um, This is like something we've never seen before, certainly. And so a lot of campaigns are grappling with the question and trying to figure it out. I did a lot of volunteering after Warren dropped out the Ohio primary, um, as you may or may not know, got moved. They were like, mm, mm-hmm. it's safe, so we're just going to move it to someday. And then eventually the state legislature decided to have it in April, but didn't really advertise it. And they said, we're doing only absentee voting. Um, but they eventually opened the Board of Elections to have some no contact voting because it was just such a mess getting ballots out and communicating the word. So I did a lot of phone banking um, during that period of time where we couldn't canvas, but I thought it was so wrong that we moved our primary and didn't tell people. And it was heartbreaking because mm-hmm. I would call these these older voters who vote religiously and they would say to me, oh, I didn't even know it had been moved. I read the newspaper, but no one reported on it and no one told me. So I phone banked for like 50 hours during that time um, and I got pretty wow. good. Yeah, it was a lot, but it was also how I kept myself in check because it was the beginning of quarantine and I had no schedule. Um, so I, I learned a lot about how to like be warm over the phone. Not that I didn't already know a lot for my campaign work, but I really started to appreciate how powerful a phone call can be, how much you can get done. And if you have a lot of people making phone calls, you can talk to a lot of voters. Something else the campaign I volunteered on also did is if they didn't have, if a voter didn't have a printer to print out an absentee ballot, they would drop one off. So during the day, the campaign staff delivered all these absentee request forms And then at night, everyone made phone calls and all the volunteers and staff were in a Slack channel. And it was often filled with wild memes and conversations (laughs) and snippets of whatever strange thing had happened to us on the phone. So I don't think we have like campaigns and staffers in general have a definitive like this is the future of quarantine organizing. But even in that urgent situation, I saw us learn to bond more online. I saw people finding creative ways to to leave behind request forms and notes about being, hope you're doing okay, here's what you need to vote. And I saw some some measures to be creative. I think it's a lot of the same work. We're just doing it over the phone. And I think, and I really hope we find even more creative ways to do it as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned absentee ballots as uh, a player in all this. 
And I'm sure you're aware of this looming battle going on in California about essentially the governor's right to expand absentee voting access to the citizens. What are your thoughts on absentee voting and voting access more broadly? Yeah, I think absentee voting is great. I think we make absentee voting really, really hard depending on what state you're in. I know that states have obviously different guidelines and a lot of freedoms, but until I worked campaigns in several different states, I don't think I realized the magnitude in which voting laws are so different and how easy or harder it is to get an absentee ballot based on where you are. So in Ohio, we had this really big problem where you had to print out a form. You cannot request one online. You have to print out the form, mail it to the Board of Elections. They mail you back a ballot. You mail the ballot back to them. And this created all this confusion because there was also a PDF printout form on the Board of Elections website that looked like it could be an online form, but it really wasn't. And people thought they requested online. Hubba lubba hubba lubba. All this to say, I really believe that absentee voting is great and it's an important tool we have in the toolbox to get people to vote and be engaged in in government. I don't think it's the end all be all. I think we should also expand early voting, right, and make it safe. I think we should take the time to think about how voting can be done socially distantly in person. Um, But I also think the idea, I just can't, I struggle so hard to imagine in what world a country says more voting is bad, right? Like (laughs) absentee voting, bad, people should not vote. No, research shows that absentee voting is secure. You know, I can barely get people to print off a request form, let alone two to try and commit voter fraud. That's a joke. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I think absentee voting is important and we should certainly expand it and governors should be able to do that. And the president suddenly or anyone taking interest in what a state does or does not do with voting. One, my thought is, why didn't you care before now? And two, my (laughs) thought is, why should we ever stop a person from voting? Ah, because they might be the wrong people. I know it's the worst. Yeah, I know it's crazy. Um, so, so the George Soros initiative for voter fraud isn't working out as well as you hoped it would. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. <laughs> yeah. So, um, this has been really awesome learning more about the specifics of these campaigns. Uh, but I do want to loop back and, and discuss the National Warren campaign because I think you have a really unique and, and cool perspective on this that our, our listeners are really going to dig. Um, we loved Warren on this podcast. She was Joe's number one choice of all the, the candidates, and she was a close two for me behind Bernie. But it seemed like she wasn't really picking up traction and she never could break into that top two status and eventually she did have to suspend her campaign having had some time to reflect on this why do you think that is what do you think prevented elizabeth warren from making bigger headroads nationally yeah i think for a while um in the summer she definitely grabbed maybe not like the most most attention, but was definitely like one of the candidates that we thought could eventually clinch the nomination. And I'm talking as a citizen, right? I was working in New York in 2019. But at one point we were talking about her as if she was going to be it, I feel like, or we were eventually going down that road or the national media was giving it a lot of attention. But I think 
as time wore on and as campaigns in the U.S. are specifically very long compared compared nationally. So long. For sure. So yeah. long. As someone who works them, oh my gosh. But I... Like in Britain, they're legally six weeks long. Like that's that's a breeze compared to the two-year slog that we've been doing. I know. It's a marathon. And I think we kind of imagine that when someone decides to support or vote for someone, that's a permanent state. But when campaigns are this long, people have time to change their minds, right? And they have time time to think and become concerned. When I, and I am a very limited perspective, right? Like I worked on the campaign, but in a very, I was in the state of Ohio, a later state primary. But when I knocked on doors, the number one thing I heard was, I don't care who the nominee is. I just want someone who can beat Trump. People mm-hmm. are desperately saying like, I don't care. I, I'm not sure I ever did. I'm just scared and sad. And I want someone who can beat Trump. So I don't feel like confident enough to like point my finger and say, this is the thing that I think stopped her. This is the thing that that did her in or here's my hot take. But what I, mm-hmm. I do think and I feel confident in saying is that people are really, really scared. And a voting block and a, a, a society is already a really difficult thing to 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 inform and try and persuade. But when you have that much fear wrapped in it, it's especially hard to do. So I think people kind of managed to convince themselves on a pretty large scale that that they had to go with the candidate that was perceived to be the most electable. And what does electable even mean, right? But I think that what that yeah. came down to eventually <laughs> was the most conventional, um, the most the most well known, the most established, whatever whatever it may be. And so I think in the end, it was this idea that we have to, as a country, pick someone who can stop this nightmare, and we have to pick someone who will beat Trump. And I think for a while, the majority of Americans believed that person was the quote unquote safest choice, was the quote unquote most conventional candidate. Being Joe Biden, obviously. Being Joe Biden, yeah. So with Joe Biden as the presumptive nominee, I think we're starting to get into the territory of wondering who is going to fill out that ticket. As a citizen what are your thoughts on the prospects of Elizabeth Warren filling that role? Ooh, I, I'm conflicted. I generally feel conflicted about, about, you know, him swearing that he would pick a woman as if it was a consolation prize. I know I should hmm. be excited and I am on some level, but there's also this bitter part of me that listens to not ready to make nice by the Dixie chicks way too much <laughs> and reads a lot of really angry feminist literature that is that is still unhappy and always going to be a little sore about the fact that we're here and the fact that this is what Joe Biden has decided to give us as a consolation prize. But all of those complicated emotions aside, I I want someone to be Joe Biden's vice president that will make him a better leader and that will generally push him to be more progressive. And I'm not sure that Elizabeth Warren being the vice president will necessarily give her some kind of edge to push her progressive ideals. I think she's extremely pushy just being a senator in the best way possible. And I'm not sure she needs that to to change this administration. And I'm not sure that her being in that position is the best way for her her to to work and fight. I've seen the conversation on kind of the the Warren Twitter, what we call the the Warren fans who all live on Twitter. Um, that was self-explanatory. Probably didn't need that explanation. <laughs> I this dialogue back and forth of like, would you rather have her be Senate Majority Leader or would you rather have her be Vice President? Blah 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 blah. And I think for me, I'm less concerned about the role. I've seen what I need to know to know that she will always keep fighting in whatever capacity. And I think no matter what she ends up doing, she'll be great. I'm just not sure that her and Biden on a ticket will be the most 
most exciting and inspiring thing ever. It is for me, um, but I'm a <laughs> voter. So I am, since we've decided to go down this path of who's the most electable, I am thinking about who's going to balance out and make people happy on the other end of that ticket. And if that's Warren, you know, great. And if not, I, that's fine too. Um, but I know enough to know that Elizabeth Warren is going to be fighting righteous fights until the day I am done in politics and probably <laughs> long after that. So that's kind of how I feel about that, which is not a real answer, but is an explanation. Oh, that's an answer. That's <laughs> definitely an answer. Um, my thoughts on it are that I, I'm a little wary about taking her out of the Senate because I think that she is such a strong fighter and a great advocate in that role. But it's shaping up to look like it's going to be a senator anyway. And of maybe some of the options, I think Elizabeth is the strongest. I think Kamala Harris would be fine. I would be very apprehensive about Klobuchar. But if if not Warren, who are you kind of thinking of then? I, I mean, I would love to see, see Kamala. I think she's just absolutely magical. I think she is a is a good leader. Like politics aside, I think she would do a really like I would be excited to see her up there as well um so I think that would be someone that I think would be a good fit for for Biden a good fit on that ticket um other than that it's hard to like fully imagine imagine who else it's an impossible job right I think Rebecca mm-hmm. Traster who is one of my favorite feminist authors and writers wrote this really wonderful article that was like whoever is Biden's vice president is in such a catch-22 and it's such it's going to be this this really, really hard job. Right. You're, you know, for reasons spoken and unspoken. So I think my general thought is I kind of am not hoping necessarily for anyone um, because I think it's just such an impossible, impossible job to have in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely that degree to it. And it seems like balancing the ticket is going to be pretty important because as nonsensical as it may seem, there is a wing of liberals who are still not convinced that it's worth voting for Biden over Trump and that they're just going to sit this one out. What do you say to those people who are disillusioned and fed up with Biden. I I feel it a bit myself, not enough to sit this one out, but I I think that's a very real emotion that people are having right now. How do you approach that? How do you quell that concern? Yeah, I think I have a couple of thoughts. I think a lot of times when we talk about that dynamic of like progressives sitting this one out, we talk about Warren as if she's a solution to that, right? And I think, you know, I was in the middle of it certainly, but there were a lot of progressives that weren't happy with Warren, a lot who were, and there was so much infighting going on. So I think we sometimes envision Warren VP as this magical solution to progressive discontentment that is so much bigger than her, um, and that is so much deeper. So that's my first thought on that. My my second thought is that there are so many cool candidates and so many cool races all over the country. Um, there are progressives running in these red, red districts in Ohio for state rep, you might find a local councilman who's really progressive, right? Like, I think there are a lot of cool people running cool races all over the country. Some really progressive people that are still in still in primaries to be the, the nominee in blue congressional districts, right? There's so many cool races going around all over. I think people who are disillusioned with Biden, the bigger question for them is, 
I want to, like, I want to, I think they should think about, oh, I hate giving unsolicited advice, but I guess it's kind of solicited. I think they should think about. Oh, it's very solicited. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think (laughs) the question of like, what do you stand for? Right. I think it's really hard to just be passionate about a candidate, but it's so much easier to do activism and campaign work and be passionate about issues or movements. And for me, I want to fight for candidates who treat women and minorities well. I want to fight for candidates and movements that value women and public education. And those are like the three things that kind of light my way. And I think this work is really hard to do and really disillusioning. And for many people, Biden wasn't, myself included, obviously, I worked for Warren, Biden wasn't the outcome we were hoping for. But I think there are so many movements and candidates and issues on all levels that you can put the work in there. And I think we this is my last thought on this. We really hate nuance in, in politics and we hate nuance in the way we talk about things, right? But for me, even if I'm not phone banking for Joe Biden, if I'm fighting to get a wonderful person elected to Congress or if I'm fighting to get a wonderful state rep in, I'm probably calling Democratic voters. I'm probably reminding to vote them to vote. And while the science isn't perfect, that impacts national politics, right? So I think it's really easy to find races, candidates, and issues that you are for if you're disillusioned or unsatisfied with Biden and fight for them. And as a result, also help to fight the broader issues such as getting Trump out of office just in a way that maybe makes you feel ideologically okay or makes you makes you still feel like you're doing the right thing. So I think it's just a matter of like, I don't know, if you're a progressive and you're like, I just don't know what to do, I would first of all tell you to take a break because breaks are great. And I probably suggest a glass of wine because that is also my go-to. Um, but after you take some time to process, I'd say, all right, you know, maybe maybe Bernie made you passionate, but you're in this fight for something bigger. What is that? Find people and movements that stand for those things and go fight for them. And in the process, you'll remove Trump from office probably and still feel good about being true to the values that you believe in. I think that's really sound advice. And I think that that was really well said and summarized. I guess I just fear that we're running into this phenomenon where our political attention is so increasingly nationalized that we don't even think to look for the local races and the local candidates. How do you think we go about bridging that gap and getting people invested in races that don't grab the headlines on the New York Times? Yeah, I think you find your county Democratic Party and you walk into their once a month meeting and I guarantee you half the candidates locally are going to be there. Um, and you, you can meet them and go through a County party meeting, which is one of my favorite things on the face of the planet. And I'm not joking. Um, and right. Like a lot of times local politics have, have meetings and groups and really consistent schedules and they will happily invite you in and welcome newcomers with open arms, almost to a point where everyone fixates on you. And they're like, who's that new young person? Let's, offer them cheese slices and make them feel really excited to be at this county Democrats meeting. So I think there's lots of ways if you're just willing to show up to, I guess now a Zoom call, but before I would have said a county meeting or a local group and find ways, you know, to, to get involved. Obviously some areas are more, more active than others, but I've known pretty small red cities to have multiple progressive activist groups and, and multiple, multiple wings and ways to get involved. It's just a matter of, you know, typing in on Facebook, progressive groups in insert your city name here or looking up your county Democratic Party. And granted, that first meeting, they might not, they might be a little more moderate than you are. They might not talk the way way you'd like to, but you'll probably get introduced to someone through that or find out about a sister group and then, and then find your passion that way. So I think it's, 
unfortunately, it's a lot on the person and the individual to, to show up or do the Google or get involved. Um, but I've never met a county county Democratic chair who wasn't excited to have some new new people in the space. And I think once you start doing it, it's really hard not to. Like now that I'm I'm so checked in politically, I can't not be thinking about state races and state house races in Ohio. I can't not be thinking about Columbus City Council, right? It gets in it gets in your brain. So once you develop the habit, I think it never goes away. And to develop it, you just gotta show up. Yeah, it's interesting. Like even from outside from a campaigning perspective, people don't quite understand how powerful just showing up can be, especially in local politics. Like there are so few people who are interested and so people who normally show up that if you just become one of those normal people who shows up, all of a sudden you're like a regular person in it whose opinion at least somewhat matters. Oh, totally. And... Like political people will take the best care of you. I love Democratic moms who kids have all gone off to college and moved out who will just like welcome you into their home and feed you. And like, you will gain a whole second family if you get involved locally, <laughs> because odds are the people there are, are happy and, and glad that you're part of the movement. That's excellent. I definitely think that um, that gives me personally a good place to start to see what's going on in Marion County and, and just uh, take a more active approach there. So uh, Casey, as I understand it, you are taking one of those breaks right now. But when that break uh, theoretically is over, what's next for you? What are you looking for? I'm not sure. This is the longest I have not worked on a campaign in two and a half years. Um, So it's been really like eye-opening in a lot of ways. I'm like running again and sewing again and doing things that I left at the wayside to to work long days and long hours. Um, But I am getting ready to bounce to the next step. I'm not entirely sure. I could see, I one thing I love about campaigns is I love big campaigns. I love the energy and I love a big team. And I love being with people who think like you, fighting for the things that you believe are important. Like I think it's magical. So I could see myself, you know, being on a big, big state operation in a, in a battleground state would be awesome. Or even a state that's trying to become a battleground state one day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also could see myself working on, on a congressional or working on a smaller race. I generally, I've got to a point where I value being passionate about my candidate and valuing the people I work with so much. The Elizabeth Warren campaign kind of spoiled me in that sense. And now I'm just less less concerned about the position and more concerned, do I, do I jive with this team? Do I like these people? Do I love this candidate? Are they the kind of people I want to fight the good fight with? So generally not sure, but I know that I want to work with people who are emotionally intelligent and fun and capable and and committed. And I am on a hunt for them right now. Well, I, I think it's wonderful that being able to have the experience in the Warren campaign gave you that clarity about what you're looking for moving forward. So uh, personally, I hope for you that you can avoid a, a toxic situation like you experienced in the past. So I'm I'm glad that you have that that blueprint now of where you're hoping to go next, even if you don't know exactly where that is. Yeah, yeah. I'm certainly, like I said, like this is the first significant time I've had off, so I've really enjoyed it. Um, but I know when I get back to it, I know what I what I what I want to work with, and I think that's a really important place to start. So mm-hmm. all right, Casey. So I've just got one more question for you here, and this is something that I'm stealing from the Ezra Klein show podcast. It's his perennial wrap-up question with all of his guests. What are three books that you've read? that are influential and that you could recommend to listeners? Okay, so 
I'm going to start with what I'm reading right now. Um, I'm reading um, a book by Saeed Jones, who actually is an author who endorsed Elizabeth Warren, and it's his memoirs. And I'm, I'm really enjoying them for a couple of reasons. He actually, fun fact, Evan did speech and debate at Western Kentucky. So not only... Oh, yeah. I, I've yeah. seen videos of his performances many times. Yeah. So I'm reading, I'm reading his memoirs, and he actually... Um, you know, lives in Columbus and was a big Warren supporter. So I'm really enjoying those from a level of like, it feels like it marries my my pre-political um, career life of like speech and, and a different world with like what I know now. And it's a very cl- interesting class for me personally, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, so that's something I'm currently reading. I honestly haven't done a ton of reading lately. I've been really on a, on a TV binge, but if we're talking <laughs> books that I would I would recommend to pick up, um, I'm actually a really big fan of short stories, which I do think comes from a past of, of speech and performance. And I've been reading a lot of that, um, a lot of stories lately. There's one book I particularly like. It's called Lover Boys. It's by a Latina author. And it's just like these wonderful, like coming of age, complicated stories. And I've been returning to a lot of my favorite passages from that recently. And then the last book that I want to recommend is probably... Good and Mad by Rebecca Traster. I know I mentioned her earlier, but she just wrote this wonderful book about women's anger and the historical significance of it and and how we how we are not supposed to feel it and are supposed to feel it and the complexities of that. Um, and fun fact about that book, actually, I was reading it outside when I was waiting in line to see Elizabeth Warren speak in Columbus. And a staffer was like, do you want me to do you want to have the senator sign this book? And I was like, oh, it's not her book, but sure. And I later found out Rebecca <laughs> Tracer was one of one of Warren's students, actually. Um, oh wow! Right, like the author was was her student, so it was kind of like a strange full circle and and lovely. And now I have Warren's signature in a book that her student wrote. That's just like <laughs> keep on fighting the good fight, Casey. Good book choice or whatever. Um, so those are those are three works that come to mind or that are are most recently at the forefront. Though if I can break break the form of the question. I have recently binged Veronica Mars, and I highly recommend that for anyone looking for some nonsense in this pandemic, but that's not technically reading, so. Oh, that's okay. I love TV as well. Yeah, I really... Don't don't I, Joe? Yeah, I convinced yeah. myself. <laughs> I'm glad that you have corroboration. Yeah, I convinced myself last week to <laughs> politics and become a PI. That lasted for like 10 minutes before I was like, you're not going to do that. What? That's crazy. Um, Isn't it great how like certain media can just inspire you to do something or think you want to do something for like 10 minutes and then it just calms down. You're like, wait, no, I don't want anything to do with that. But it sounded cool in the moment. No. Yeah. And for those 10 minutes, you're so bought in. You're like, I am going to going to become a PI. I just need like four years of experience in the criminal justice field. (laughs) It'll be fine. And I'm like, what are you doing? That's not that's not real goofy. Like an extreme version of that. I had a roommate in college who w- watched Wolf of Wall Street and he was a music major. And then he started like looking at accounting classes for like a hot second. It's always um, fun. I think yeah. he missed the point of that movie. He did. He did very much. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of that, you know, even the projections of men who are imperfect in media, a lot of guys will still go. Yeah. Yeah, I want to be that. <laughs> Seems great. Just without the bad stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, Casey, you've been wonderful. I could not have asked for more in our first ever guest. We appreciate your time so much. Thank you for coming on to Adequately Informed. My pleasure. And thanks for putting up with my technological problems. Um, and oh, not an issue at all. Yeah, you know, just 
I'll never understand technology, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. And it was my first time being a guest on a podcast too. So like we really, it was a good pair first and first. Not the last, I promise you. <laughs> a lot of people are, are going to be asking for your perspective and expertise. So Evan, we're here at an end segment. What, what yeah, are we doing we today? There. We are doing what I believe we've done at least once before on the podcast. Random recommendations with Evan and Joe. We're each going to recommend one thing that we interacted with recently that we think you should interact with as well. So Joe, what's your random recommendation? Uh, damn, I was going to bounce that off to you first, but my recommendation off the top of my head, I, this past week, I actually read, listened to audiobook, The uh, the Fifth Risk, the book that we have What's talked that? about. <laughs> <laughs> the book that we have talked about endlessly over the last four weeks. I finally got around to, uh, you know, consuming, and I can't recommend it enough. Uh, when I read it, it ended up, somehow it had this magical quality of being a real page turner talking about people who forecast the currents in order to search and rescue uh, people off who, you know, who have fallen into the ocean. Um, it was really gripping learning um, about uh, people who, uh, you know, look at weather forecast. It was a real page turner and, you know, I, I can't recommend it enough. And, you know, even that book alone, learning about what the Trump administration is doing to the federal government. Like if I knew nothing about Trump to begin with and I read that book, I would be so furious. Um, and I am furious, as you can hear in my tone of voice. But um, I can't recommend it enough. The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. We have not ended talking about it i'm sure we'll talk about it more yep good book second the recommendation but that's not my recommended thing what's your recommendation evan in 2015 a film by gus van zandt debuted at the Cannes film festival called the sea of trees this movie was booed mercilessly and torn apart by critics both domestically and abroad its release was delayed by a year in the United States because it was considered so toxic to distributors, eventually landing its way onto Netflix here in 2020. <laughs> I watched this film, and I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, I loved it. I think that there is a supernatural element to it, and most of the times when we see supernatural elements in film, the being is malicious or otherwise marauding in an attempt to defeat the main characters. But when it's flipped on its head, regardless of the actual quality of the presentation, it's derided as saccharine and melodramatic. The idea that there could be a benevolent good force working to help one of our main characters. Essentially, the film is about a man played by Matthew McConaughey who enters Japan's suicide forest to end his own life before his plans get a bit derailed. What follows is a beautiful, touching journey of sadness, loss, and redemption. And 
if you are willing to watch this movie with absolutely uncynical eyes, I think you will enjoy it as I did. The Sea of Trees, directed by Gus Van Zandt, now streaming on Netflix. All right, check it out. Netflix has stuff to watch, guys. We are not sponsored. We are not. Man, man what... <laughs> does uh, does Netflix really need to do any advertising? No, like not anymore. <laughs> yeah, like... They, they wouldn't sponsor some schlubs on a podcast. Like, what if we had an ad read that was just like, yeah, um, mm, I I watched this thing on Netflix. Um, it's a very valuable service to me. Um, get Netflix. I was just some rube watching HBO Go, and then I found out about Netflix. Are you, you can tired? Watch. Are you tired of watching all the publicly available digitalized uh, public channels because that's all you have? Are you tired of just listening to the radio endlessly for your entertainment? Well, try Netflix. Have you run out of all of the public domain movies on YouTube? Try Netflix. Yeah. Wherever Netflix products are sold. <laughs> well anyway i think that's uh that's a good place to end it i hope you've liked this episode um especially our interview we hope uh that you like that and if you have any recommendations for possible guests hit us up with those maybe we'll reach out to them see if they can come on and provide their perspective that we hope is adequately informed but um We'd also like to thank Anthony Hitch for the music, as always. Thank you again for listening. And big anyway, thank my- you. Big thank you to our guest, Casey Sabella. Yeah, big, 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 big thank you. And my name's Joe Hicks. Mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed. <laughs>